Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecta. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. Welcome to the Slow Food Youth Network Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Swin Podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti and I'm the Global Community and Project Manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. The podcast of today is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, focusing on the latest European policy updates. So as usual, for this series, our special host from the Slow Food Europe office in Brussels is Alice Poiron. Alice will delve into the interesting topic of food and health, exploring food environments, food labeling and much more. Our guests today are Nikolai Pushkarev from the European Public Health Alliance, Corinna Hawkes, Director of the Center for Food Policy from the University of London, and Nina Wolf, Director of Slow Food Germany and member of the Slow Foods International Board. Enjoy the show! During Slow Foods International event on sustainable food systems, Terra Madre, that took place last September in Turin, I interviewed three remarkable speakers that were present, to shed light on the complex relationship between food and health and on which policy solutions exist to reconcile them in a world where industrial polluting farming is the norm, not the exception. While the impact of the overconsumption of ultra-processed food on our body is well known by all of us, other negative phenomena that are directly linked to the production of food are not, although they endanger human health, but also that of the planet. So, I asked Nikolai Pushkarev from the European Public Health Alliance to give us a brief overview. Uh, nutritious, safe food in adequate quantities is really a, a human need, uh, actually also a human right, but in any case, it's um, really a building block for healthy, for flour- flourishing lives. So this is critical, and this is always have, has to be at the forefront of thinking between uh, food and health. Uh, but there's actually many other interlinkages that, 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 that you can find. Now, for instance, food systems, they are responsible for around a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and now climate change being uh, a major threat to health, uh, some say even the biggest uh, threat to human health, well, you have a very clear linkage there. Um, also, um, we have to look at um, uh, antimicrobial resistance, or in other words, uh, drug resistance, uh, which happens when... Uh, bacteria no longer respond uh, to antibiotics, which um, in fact uh, threatens um, the, the treatment of uh, infections, but also surgeries, chemotherapy, and so forth. And the situation is really getting uh, worse. And uh, antibiotics overuse in animal agriculture is one of the contributing factors, although, well, human medicine, of course, still remains probably the biggest one. Then you have, um, of course, chemicals, which uh, are used pretty much in all stages of the uh, food system, from production, uh, but also well into packaging. Uh, And there's also, well, a new, uh, I guess, newer concern uh, around microplastics, Uh, still, uh, well, some question marks around it, but definitely potential health threats there. Um, Also, to continue, there's occupational issues. So um, although, of course, work uh, quite often in in food agriculture has a really kind of strong strong component of uh, social cultural identity uh, of well-being, at the same time, these are quite hazardous professions uh, with um, working conditions that, uh, well, often lead to exposure to different health threats. And uh, there's also quite often precarity in in, in work in in agri-food. So again, um, with with health um, effects. 
Another, I would say, less uh, highly uh, recognized but, but still very real factor is um, air pollution. Um, so you have among ab about ammonia uh, emissions is uh, around 90% of ammonia emissions come uh, from farms um, in, in Europe. And they are actually um, an important contributor to so-called particulate matter formation. And particulate matter is uh, one of the biggest, uh, biggest uh, um, entities that really cause harm uh, to, to human health from air pollution. And finally, but not, uh, not, not least, um, uh, that's the, the issue of infectious disease. So basically, um, agriculture through the land use change that it has been uh, provoking has been contributing quite a lot to the uh, emergence and spread of infectious disease, especially zoonosis uh, throughout the world. Um, and these are, well, uh, a few of the main ones. Of course, you can go into further depth, but it really, I think, shows how health and, and food are interlinked at many levels. Many of the so-called emerging diseases that have affected large areas of the planet in recent years, such as Ebola, AIDS, COVID-19, swine flu and avian flu, are not random catastrophic events, but a consequence of human activities on nature. For centuries, the existence of natural barriers prevented the spread of viruses, but the growing global demand for food and natural resources and consequent human activities have led to important environmental changes like the loss of large expenses of habitat to make space for intensive animal farming and other agricultural activities. The infectious diseases that I just mentioned share a zoonotic origin, which means they are all transmitted by animals, especially wild animals. More than 60% of human infectious diseases originate in animals, while land use change, food production and the agricultural sector are responsible for nearly half of all emerging infectious diseases. In order to help restore the planet and biodiversity's health, it is therefore crucial to change the way we produce and consume food, notably by adopting what is called a planetary diet. You probably don't know what I mean by this, but fear not, because I spoke with Corinna Hawkes, Director of the Centre for Food Policy from the University of London, who explained it all to me. Planetary diet is eating a diet, of, uh, a series of foods, a set of foods, uh, as meals and as, as snacks, which is aligned with pl planetary boundaries, which means that we can eat food, which is going to mean that the planet stays within the planetary boundaries. In other words, that the planet will survive and we won't exceed those planetary boundaries um, through climate change and other forms of ecosystem destruction. So, planetary diet means eating food that does not endanger the survival of the planet. Okay, got it. But what about planetary boundaries? The planet is limited by its capacity uh, in various ways, uh, including the air, our water, our biodiversity. And if uh, we extend, or if we destroy these elements of nature uh, beyond a certain boundary, uh, it is a point of no return. So it will mean that the planet is forever changed and will probably be moving towards extinction. So it's the boundaries in which the planet has to stay within in order to survive in all of these different elements. And the most uh, critical one at this point of time is uh, climate change. Basically, everything is interconnected. The health of humans, animals, and that of the planet, with every little change happening to one of them impacting the others. This is what we call the One Health Approach. 
Well, the One Health approach is one of the systems approaches which are currently very much being developed and talked about, discussed and debated uh, in the world where we're trying to think about how to make the most effective change. And these systems approaches are essentially about saying, uh, if I eat some food or if the, the world eats a certain diet, it's going to have this impact on climate, it's going to have this impact on economy, it's going to have this impact on our health. It's trying to make the connections in the food system. And One Health is one of those approaches. And what it says is, is that there is a connection between human health, animal health and ecosystem health, and that we shouldn't consider them separately. Uh, so that's essentially what it, what it means. And um, in practice, it's about the nature of decision making. It's around saying, if I'm going to make a decision about how to protect animal health, how can I ensure that also protects human health? If I'm going to make a decision about human health, how can I ensure that aligns with animal health and ecosystem health? The One Health approach is at the core of Slow Food's new position paper on food and health that was released last spring and in which we take a deep dive into how nourishing biodiversity is key to heal ourselves and the planet. I asked Nina Wolf, Director of Slow Food Germany and member of Slow Foods International Board, to shed light on the Slow Foods vision outlined in that document. Slow Food has quite a holistic approach to food and health, which means uh, that we are um, applying a One Health approach. So One Health approach, this means that we recognize the interconnectedness of uh, the health of people, the health of plants, animals and ultimately the health of the planet. And uh, we have to respect all these four categories in order to make it a really uh, healthy people on a healthy planet. For Slow Foods this means that we um, advocate for healthy and sustainable diets. So it's not only the health of the individual, but really the health of our biodiversity and the health of our planet that we're looking for. This also means that individuals have to adapt their diets to the planetary boundaries. The way our diets are composed nowadays um, is unhealthy for our planet. Especially if we eat too much meat, so we have to reduce drastically the amount of meat we're eating. If slow food supports people to have more sustainable lifestyles, this is also a question of equality. We have to face that uh, a quarter of the world population does not have access to appropriate food. And uh, this is um, a huge injustice. So uh, fighting for, for health for us at the same time always means to fight um, for increasing the access to healthy food. And what about pleasure? Too often, healthy diets are associated with privation, calorie restrictions and monotony. So, can we eat healthy and enjoy it at the same time? Absolutely. Pleasure is part of the, of the one health and of the planetary health game, I would say. At least when it's uh, done in the slow food way. So, um, yes, we need to adapt our diets and yes, we need to fight uh, for access to good, clean and fair food for everybody, so also for healthy food. Um, but at the same time, um, pleasure will help us to find back to our roots, 
and to um, to rediscover what is really good food, and uh, that's uh, actually an, a very important part of the slow food philosophy. Pleasure can be one of our guides to finding real good food. That's what we like to hear. But we cannot go on that quest all alone. Over the last decades, the dominant food policy narrative has focused on promoting, quote-unquote, responsible consumer choices, placing considerable weight on citizens' shoulders while completely absolving industrials and politicians. But, as Nikolai states it, this is not how things work as people go about their daily lives in the real world. It is simply uh, not, not true that uh, people aspire to eat in a way that, you know, 10 years down the line they'll be uh, on permanent medication because they, 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 they have some uh, attracted a disease. Or nobody actually wishes to, to, to be eating um, in a way to undermine the environment or, or, or to, to, to drive climate change. Uh, but we are all put in, in this situation by, by the food environments around us. The evidence is overwhelming that food choices are constrained and shaped by a whole range of physical, economic, political and sociocultural influences, most of which are beyond an individual's control. Long story short, we are all strongly influenced by what we call food environments, as we just heard Nikolai say. You may have already heard about that phrase in one of the last Svinz podcasts. If not, I strongly encourage you to save it for later and listen to it. Meanwhile, let's hear more about these food environments and their impact on our diets from the mouth of Corinna Hawkes. Food environments are at the intersection between us as people and our food systems. They are what surround us as we go around our everyday lives. So, for example, in, in coming to this podcast uh, today, I walked past a supermarket. That's part of my food environment. I also had the privilege of being part of the Terra Madre uh, Forum and being surrounded by the amazing slow food, which is, which is there. So that's part of my food environment today, but it's not part of my normal food environment. So it's really the food that surrounds people as they go about their everyday lives, how much it costs, how it's marketed to them, how nutritious it is. Uh, whether it's appealing to those people. Uh, and by acquiring that food, it also could be in your own garden as well, it could be something on your own farm, or it could be wild foods. Uh, and the importance of that is that at that intersection between us and our food system, at that point of food acquisition, is where we can really begin to try and make change to say, right, how can we um, change those in food environments so that people have uh, accessible, affordable, appealing food available to them in their food environment and how that intersects with the other realities of people's lives such as how much money they have, the socio-cultural context they come from, the kind of house they live in. Uh, so it's a very po a powerful point of intervention to improve uh, what we eat as a, as a human species. The challenge to reconcile food and health is one that concerns the whole world, Europe included. The European Union produces enough food to feed its 447 million citizens. Yet, poor diet is a leading risk factor for bad health among Europeans, especially the most vulnerable populations. A paradox that Nikolai Pushkarev has agreed to shed light on for us. On the one hand, uh, we really need to acknowledge that uh, there have been important achievements in uh, the European food system. That definitely when you think about you know, food safety, uh, food sufficiency, uh, availability, 
Um, and well, it's, it would be fair to say that indeed these, the, these current levels of uh, food availability do support um, quite some adequate nutrition among quite a few um, uh, Europeans. Now, but at the same time, uh, you see that unhealthy diets are quite ubiquitous. So they're all around. In fact, they are probably the single leading burden of uh, the, 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 the leading um, cause of the burden of disease um, in, the, uh, in, in the EU, so in, in Europe. And you're really looking at contributions to, to, to those key uh, diseases that, that are actually uh, responsible for premature uh, mortality and um, the, the kind of the longer term uh, disease factors, which include cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, um, cancers, and so forth. And diets is, is really one of the big, uh, unhealthy diet is one of the big contributing factors to that. Uh, which is related in many ways to the overconsumption of foods high in fat, sugar, salt, and also red processed meats, uh, amongst others. And uh, these diets are also low, being low in vegetables, in fruits, um, in whole grains. And I guess really, for me at least, the, the paradox is really that we have uh, a society with such capacities, like both on technological, on financial um, terms, in terms of knowledge, in terms of you know, the kind of how distribution systems are well um, elaborated. And still, we, we are kind of experiencing that uh, the food, which is one of the core components of, uh, of our well-being, is, is basically overall contributing to uh, harm to us. And what is the European Union doing about it? Are we on track to improve EU citizens' diets? Well, so far it has not been because otherwise we wouldn't be in the situation we are. But, but let's, let, let's just say that there's much more um, um, proactive commitment. And I guess the, the most um, important um, uh, kind of initiative which really has um, uh, potential is um, a, a new piece of uh, legislation, the so-called um, Sustainable Food Systems Law that um, the European Commission has uh, committed to propose next year, so that is in 2023, um, and which uh, is meant to deal uh, comprehensively, holistically with, uh, with the food system. And uh, well, our expectation uh, is that it will also set uh, the stage for the creation of uh, healthier, more sustainable food environments, because ultimately, uh, if you think about uh, dietary patterns, so uh, all the factors that influence uh, what we buy, what we eat, and therefore also the impacts of our uh, eating patterns, both on our health and on, uh, on, on the health of the planet, um, they are linked to how uh, food environments um, uh, function. Ah, those food environments again. They definitely are a cornerstone in repairing the relationship between our food and our health. And one way to take a step further into that direction might be to reform an influential element of our food choices, food labels. But as Corinna highlights it, their efficiency remains limited. If I'm walking through a supermarket um, or if I'm walking through a fresh food market, uh, there will be labels uh, probably in the supermarket, less so in the fresh food market. So labelling is associated with the more modern food economy and foods which are packaged. That's typically what they're associated with. And many of those foods aren't particularly healthy. So food labelling has been used as a vehicle to try and say, well, this packaged food is unhealthy um, and this kind of 
uh, packaged food is, is healthier. So it's important because it provides information and it provides transparency about what, what is in that food. For example, some people might think that buying a, a really large orange juice is quite expensive, but they'll think it's really healthy for me. And in small quantities, it is healthy, but it also contains a lot of sugar. And people have the right to know that. So uh, food labelling is important for that, and, uh, to, to make sure that people are properly in, informed. And it's also perhaps a way of warning people. So there's quite a lot of different labels that have been developed in different contexts um, around the world. And all of them have a certain utility uh, in informing consumers. The evidence is very clear that some consumers find certain um, labels easier to read than others and that varies between uh, country context so uh, it's hard to say exactly which the best label is uh, what is important is that all governments um, uh, develop labels uh, in concert with their populations to understand what will be most readily understood by their populations particularly populations um, who are living in circumstances where things like labels are less likely to be an important influence because you've got so much other difficulties in your life that f focusing on a label is not really going to drive your food choices so much. Um, but uh, how can labels be best used to try and help make sure that those populations are, are fully informed? So there's an important role to play, but it's also very limited. Although food labelling is important, improving it alone won't get us very far. Many other aspects of our societies also need a complete revamp. Well, there's many, many things that need to be done. Um, I'll just s say a few of them. Uh, one of them that is really important are, is uh, a holistic approach to improving food in early years settings and in schools. Uh, it's expensive and it can be quite tricky to do, um, but to me, a country can truly say it's looking after its children if it is doing everything it can in nursery settings or in school settings to ensure that food is healthy, that it is delicious, that you are engaging kids in teaching kids about, about food and about the joy of food, gardening if that's possible in that particular setting, integrating food into the curriculum, that teachers are modelling uh, eating healthy food, that there is a wonderful social space for people to eat, for children to eat food. This is not an easy ask. Um, but uh, it is a way of getting children in their earliest years to value and appreciate healthy and sustainable food. Uh, so it's something that they can take forward. It's something that isn't only um, that's the right thing to do in a, a kind of technical sense to eat nutritious foods, but something that, that kids value. But it's also really important for kids who come from very low income families, uh, which is you know, very millions and millions of children around the world because it means that they actually get a proper meal every day. Uh, so for those kids at risk of hunger and other forms of malnutrition, it's incredibly important. So uh, policies on school food are really important. Secondly, uh, marketing to children, marketing to, to everyone really, um, that we know that ultra-processed, unhealthy ultra-processed foods, often high in fat, sugar and salt, are sold to consumers as highly aspirational foods. And, um, if you're coming from a, a background where you're trying to make your life better, who, who doesn't want to make for a better life for themselves, I think we all do, and this food is sold to you that this is your pathway to a better life, it becomes very aspirational. And the way that it's sold is that it's very easy to socialize around that kind of food, it's, it's positioned in, 
in a way that gives it high status. And it doesn't, that doesn't all come from marketing, but a lot of it does. Um, so I think that there should be no food market, as many people do think there should be no uh, unhealthy food marketing. So that's also really important. And thirdly, people need to have the means to, to ac acquire healthy food. So, uh, and what's known as social protection, social safety nets, some places call it uh, welfare systems, uh, social systems, um, but also decent wages. Um, the uh, ensure that people aren't poor, which is the, the most difficult thing to solve um, because of uh, profound global inequalities. Um, but but making sure that policies are in place to to ensure that people are not struggling, who are struggling to get by, can't access nutritious foods. Slow Food exists to nourish biodiversity, climate and health through food. As you heard in this podcast, health, climate, biodiversity and social crisis, everything is connected. This is why Slow Food thrives to take a holistic approach to food and to promote food that is good for the people who eat it, good for the people who grow and make it, and good for the planet. If you want to find out more on this topic, I encourage you to scroll through Slow Food's position paper on food and health and to sign up to our monthly EU newsletter. You can find all the links in the episode description. Thank you so much, Alice, for this interesting episode. Thanks to our special guests and thanks to all of you who are supporting us by listening to this podcast. And please share it with your local network. Remember that if you have any suggestions or you would like us to discuss a special topic, you can get in touch with us at podcast at slowfoodyouthnetwork.org. See you in the next episode. Ciao!